Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. I think we'll just jump right into it. Anthony, do you want to start? Good morning, uh, guys. How's it going? Good. Yeah. Uh, do you want to start with a little intro about yourself, and then we'll kind of jump into why you sought treatment? Yeah, sure. I'm Anthony. I will have eight years sober next month. Yay! Congrats. Yeah. So I've had I've had quite the journey with pride. I have to tell you, I sought treatment the first time when I was 29 in 1999, and I went to Pride in Bellmead, New Jersey, which is no longer mm-hmm. there. I don't, okay. even, I don't even know when that lasted. Bellmead? Bellmead, New Jersey. It was like horse country in Jersey. I was living <laughs> in New York at the time. So, so you would travel across the river? Oh, yes. Yeah? Or not. To yeah. New Jersey? Okay. okay. Or not. Yeah. Huh. And I was definitely one of those New Yorkers that like nothing was past the Hudson River. Because like, you were right in Manhattan, right? I grew up on Long Island. I lived in this city for 19 years. Mm-hmm. So at 29, I saw treatment due to the fact that I had 54 unexcused absences from my job. <laughs> <laughs> and they still didn't fire me. But And I actually had a really understanding boss at the time. And she was like, you know, when you're here, you're great. But when, you know, you got to show up. Mm-hmm. So I went to treatment twice that year. And then after the stint in, it was December 1999, I actually stayed sober for almost 11 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, so all of my 30s, and I have to say that great things happen in life when you stay sober, because my 30s were pretty amazing. And um, yeah, I had some really great career stuff happen. And then when I turned 40, I call it my midlife crisis. <laughs> um, and the one, the one thing I'll say about that is because everybody asks, like, what happened after 11 years? Like, you know, why did you decide to drink? And I literally made the conscious decision that well, number one, I stopped going to meetings. Mm-hmm. My job took over my life, and I just, the self-care kind of flew out the window. And when you're not around it, you forget. Mm-hmm. This, is, this, is, this, was, this is kind of what, I, I don't, it's not even an excuse, it's actually what happened. And um, I literally thought, I will be drinking for different reasons, and if, I, if it becomes a problem, I will just stop again, which is the problem of every alcoholic and addict, <laughs> is that when we think we start, we, start, we hold on to that two times, I went out to dinner and had two glasses of wine. Mm-hmm. But it only happened two times. It's like gamblers who only talk about the win. You know right. what I mean? They never talk about love. Because there was thousands of other times that I went out and drank and couldn't stop. So, yeah, I decided then that I was going to start drinking. It was a problem. I'm going to stop. Fast forward 20 months later, I'm now a meth addict. Mm-hmm. I cannot stop. Um, so what happened in, it was June of, it was June 23rd, 2012. I remember this very specifically. I showed up at my job. I'm a hairstylist. It was like this very fancy ass salon up mm-hmm. in the Upper East Side of New York. And I G'd out at my job. Wow. So I've been smoking meth for like five or six months. I do not remember who or where I was when I did it. Mm-hmm. Still to this day, don't know how I got started, but I can tell you that Meth took over my life in a way that alcohol, I, w- I was definitely, I'm definitely an alcoholic and everything usually starts with alcohol, but I was more like a binge drinker. Like I would, I didn't drink daily, but when I did, it was off to the game races. over. Yeah, game mm-hmm. over. It was like Russian roulette, mm-hmm. you know, like what's going to happen tonight? Who knew? 
So I guess one night I smoked meth and then I was literally a daily smoker almost immediately. Wow. Yeah. And um, that doesn't go good with a job and a career and relationships <laughs> and people. And now I've been sober for almost 11 years. So like my whole life was based around sobriety. Mm-hmm. So I kept it like a secret. And um, anyway, that Saturday morning I showed up to work. I don't know how many days I'd been up, but I actually cheated out of my job. Can you explain, um, just for our listeners, what yeah. GHB means? What do you so mean GHB. Mm-hmm. I've done some GHB. And, you know, you can... It's a very scary drug in the sense that I've known a lot of people who passed away from GHB. Mm-hmm. And I'm such an alcoholic, you know, not supposed to mix the two. But I was such an alcoholic that I didn't even stop drinking when I did GHB. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's all a blur, kind of, how much I had done or what was going on. But, you know, and I really scared the people at my job. Like, I had a seizure on the floor of my boss's office. I was, like, throwing up in her waistband, and, like, my ex-boyfriend, who was sober at the time, had to come pick me up. And that's when I found pride here in Minnesota. I didn't even know where Minnesota was. <laughs> <laughs> so, and now on a negative, like, 13 or whatever it is today, you're like, how did I get here? Yep. <laughs> I think, I, we'll get into what, like, how that all happened, uh-huh. but I, I love it here. I really do. So I want to backtrack, because yeah. I heard a couple different things. So I heard, mm-hmm. so you were 11 years sober, yep. and the first stint that you did in, with rehab was for just strictly alcohol. I mean, I did drugs too, mm-hmm. but, like, not, like, you know... It was mainly alcohol, for sure. Mm-hmm. I considered myself only an alcoholic in my first recovery. And so then after 11 years of sobriety, you kind of felt a little bit more comfortable, like, maybe I've changed, or like, maybe I can handle this a little bit better. To I worked through all the issues that made yeah. me drink. I'm good now. Right. Yeah. And so then that was when you picked up your meth addiction. Yeah. It was 11 years later. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. After drinking probably for about a year and a half, hmm. I'm telling I do not remember where I was or who I was with or when I did. Wow. But that drug took me over. It took myself. Like, it was, mm-hmm. it was unbelievable. It really was scary. Scary, scary, scary. And then you mentioned your job, too. And I just think, like, <clears throat> how incredible that it was that you were even able to function at that level. Um, I, I, like, get a headache, and it's like I'm down <laughs> for the count. So I just, I mean, that's incredible. You were it's obviously so, able to manage, like, a really stressful life. I know. So I have a friend who's a, for a years in recovery who used to be a so and we joke about, like, as high as we would like, I would literally forget to cut half of people's head. <laughs> I don't know how. I like no. Yeah. And no one said anything. No one was like, "Hey." I mean, people people thought something was wrong. Yeah, sure. I think they thought I was sick. Sure. I, like I don't know because mm. I I weigh about one sixty five right mm-hmm. now. I was one thirty eight when I showed up at Pride the first time mm-hmm. in June of two thousand twelve. Wow. Yeah. So I, I got sent, you know, a ex boyfriend who was over time new enough to be like, hey, you're on your own, man. You want help? You go get it. Mm-hmm. So I called Pride here in Minnesota and I showed up with four days sober. And uh, I stayed the 28 days. But the mistake that I made <laughs> against the advice of my counselors was I went back to New York and I immediately went back into my life. And then not only adding the stress of my job, I now had to go to IOP in New York mm-hmm. to keep the job. It was one of the situations, like, I had 11 years sobriety, and now I'm going to meetings to get my sheet signed that actually showed up to prove I went to meetings. It was it was a humbling yet humiliating experience <laughs> at the same time. And I stayed sober for about seven months. And um, I, I think when I look back on it, I wanted to change, but didn't have the guts to do it. I was kind of mm-hmm. like a self-sabotage thing. Like, rather than walking into my boss's office and being like, listen, I can't, I can't handle this job and staying sober at the same time. It's funny, it was the same company that I worked for in 1999. Mm-hmm. It 
because I, I wasn't there for quite some time in my 30s, and then I went back. Yeah. Um, and it was just a very demanding sort of competitive environment. Totally. Um, so yeah, so I stayed sober, sober like seven months, and then I relapsed. I think it was for about seven weeks. I literally left an AA meeting at the break, went and bought some wine. It was a Tuesday night. Literally by that Friday, I was smoking that thing. Oh, no. So through my counselor at IOP in New York, we got in touch with Pride here again. Mm-hmm. And then I came March 20th, 2013, and I've been here ever since. <laughs> so uh, Pride, Pride for the reason I chose Pride specifically for me was because I wanted to be in an environment where I would be comfortable being myself. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had a lot of friends in recovery who had gone to other treatment centers, and they just did, they had expressed to me that they didn't feel that level of comfort with their sexuality being in a quote unquote straight rehab. And mm-hmm. I knew that that was one obstacle that mm-hmm. I had to work on with myself, that I did not want that barrier to be there. And I had, I had had success with pride in the past. And I, I mean, the counselors were incredible. The atmosphere was so loving and caring that I knew it was where I needed to be to get back to myself. And so the second time that I came here and walked in, I truly surrendered when I walked through those doors. I said to myself that I am going to do whatever pride tells me to do. And the suggestion was stay for sober living. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what I did. And now we're sitting in the building that I came to for IOP, which I haven't been here now. It's been, <laughs> I graduated from here. It was seven years in September. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really, yeah, yeah. So it was changed a little bit, but it feels mm-hmm. it still feels like home when I come. Mm-hmm. Good, you know, yeah. Um, so really quick, I, I heard an interesting thing. Cause I think for me, you know, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community as well. And so like, I think that we all kind of have our different experience with our coming out journey and our sexuality. And I guess the trauma that comes around with that. And so you mentioned being in a culturally specific kind of rehab. Um, what has that experience been like did, or in your lifetime, what was your experience coming out like? And to, do you think that that had an impact with your uh, substance use? Absolutely. A hundred. I, when I tell my story in meetings, I always start with, so in, I was a gymnast growing up and in sixth grade, my sister used to like, I, I'm the youngest of three. And my sister used to love like putting me in like a leotard and like, she was like, like kind of my idol. And, um, <laughs> like walking me around mm-hmm. and I loved it I totally loved it mine was yeah. I would always wear my dad's like big long shirts and that was my dress but <laughs> <laughs> yeah being in a gymnast I had like the, the outfits for it mm-hmm. sorry so I was like in the gym show in sixth grade and I literally got pegged gay in sixth grade mm-hmm. and from then on I think I was, like, had a, I was pretty normal to them but then I like literally half the school was like waiting to beat me up after class. Mm-hmm. And then I realized what it was like to live in fear. Like I was afraid to go to school. I was afraid to like walk down the street to like the deli or the candy store, which we mm-hmm. used to go to. Like it became, everything became afraid. And when I started drinking in 10th grade, that fear went away. Mm-hmm. Like it was like the magic elixir. And I could show up to parties. I could show up at the, the dead end we used to hang out with. But I always had to be drunk before I got there. Because mm-hmm. I realized it wasn't so much like, like, I would walk down the hall and people would, like, throw something at me or say, it was the fear of humiliation. Mm-hmm. You know, and alcohol really took that away from me. Like, I could act like, if even if I heard it, I could act like I didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, like if somebody called me a fag or mm-hmm. gay or queer or something like that. Right. Um, so everything became better drunk. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the problem with me was... My dad was an alcoholic. My grandfather was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So hereditarily, I had the gene. 
And I literally blacked out the first time I drank when I was 15. Oh. So on wine coolers, Calvin wine coolers. <laughs> you guys are too young to remember those. Uh-huh. But they were, I mean, like, you had to drink a lot, yeah. like, to black out. But yeah. I would, like, get the big one, you know? Like, mm-hmm. oh, and I just loved it. I so loved it. what era are we talking here? 80s? 80s. Okay. Yeah, I graduated high school in 88. So this yeah. was, like, 85. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. what 80s is... 80s were the best. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I believe it. Yeah. I, whenever I watch... I mean, <laughs> 80s and 90s are so forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I watch like Stranger Things or something that takes you oh, up to that so era nice. or like that Molly Ringwald dance on top of the car and live vicariously, club, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I was born too late. You could not see the backdrop in my high school yearbook. Like uh-huh. you, the girl's hair was so big, you can't see the backdrop. It's just like you know what movie I just watched. Working Girl with Melanie Griffith. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, years Weaver? ago. Oh, <laughs> the best. And then yeah. the Carly Simon song and the movie that's the backtrack. I was like, ah, uh, I'm living for mm-hmm. yeah. living. Ladies were good. Ladies mm-hmm. were fun for sure. Mm-hmm. So you were pushed out of the closet at a young age, um, almost. Well, I don't know if I. Yeah, I didn't come out. You didn't come. Did you no. ever come out? Nineteen. Nineteen. Yeah, officially. Yeah, was almost a year and a half mm-hmm. in the college. I did get my associate's degree in liberal arts. Okay. Me five years. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, party became a priority. Party yeah. <laughs> became a priority back then. But yeah, I came out at nineteen. I specifically got a job at the mall, mm-hmm. Smith Haven Mall, Long Island, because my friends had told me the manager was gay. Mm. So my coming out experience, I was dating <laughs> this girl, Pam, who was the assistant manager, and she got me the job. Mm-hmm. My first day there, we go out to the Red Robin in the mall. Mm-hmm. We get super drunk, and I end up sleeping with the manager's boyfriend. <laughs> oh, no. Uh-oh. Yeah. But That's then me and him, me and the manager, Joel, his name is Joel, we became best friends. Mm-hmm. He dumped the boyfriend, we became best friends, and then he introduced me to, like, the club team. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So then I had, we wound up having, like, this little bit of gaggle of gays, and, like, they introduced me to the clubs in New York. They introduced me to, at the time, it was Ecstasy, not Molly, and mm-hmm. Special K, and that was, like, sort of, and cocaine, and that was sort of the extent of it at the time. So... I think it's so interesting, too, because in 2020, I see young people, teenagers, um, who are just so comfortable in themselves. And for me, I feel so happy for that because I wasn't. Yeah. But I also grew up here in the Midwest. And so I'm even kind of surprised. Obviously, you know, you grew up in New York. Can you talk about that experience and how much New York has changed culturally, too? Well, you know, like when I grew up on Long Island, I literally was a town away from the ferry to Fire Island. Mm -hmm. But what happened was... The kids in high school were like, oh, the freaks are coming this summer. It's, mm-hmm. it's almost summer, the freaks. So, like, in my head, I was like, I'm a freak. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm the one mm-hmm. they want to beat up. Um, I mean, then when I moved to New York, it was just like, it was like absolute freedom. Yeah. You know, when I moved into the city. Long Island was like, I'm sure it's different now. I mean, I've, I haven't lived there in Long Island now for a long time. But right. New York was very, like... Anything goes. Right, because as, yeah. a, as a farm yeah. kid who, like, <laughs> lived in hay bales and, yeah. <laughs> like, small town North Dakota, I just think of New York City, and I'm growing up, I was like, I wish I lived in an environment like that, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. so I was interested by that. My first experience of never living in fear, though, was my first trip to Provincetown, I have to say. Have you guys mm-hmm. have ever been to Provincetown? Mm-hmm. I haven't. No. Okay, it's a must, mm-hmm. for sure. Because it, I don't know. I remember, like, walking down the street one day, I was like, why do I love this place? And it was like... Because I was so unafraid. Mm-hmm. Like, people would walk, men, tall, six-foot men were walking down the street in heels and a skirt, and no one even blinked an eye. Wow. Like, it felt to me like the safest place on earth to be who I wanted to be mm-hmm. without that fear of humiliation or ridicule or actually physically being hurt, right. you know? Just for being myself, mm-hmm. you know? And for a long time, like, alcohol and drugs 
squelch that fear. But then, you know, coming to Pride, I realized I had to face it. Yeah. If I was going to live a sober life, I had to work through all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say today, like, I don't live in fear, which is pretty amazing. But, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of hard work, mm-hmm. you know, but... So you've been sober, not been sober, been sober. How do you maintain sobriety today? Today, it's, well, especially with the pandemic, mm-hmm. I mean, people are really struggling. Difficult, for uh, sure. Yeah, I, re- I told my story in a, a CMA meeting a couple of weeks ago, and I realized, like, when you're on Zoom, you don't feel people's reactions. Like, mm-hmm. you're not... To me, the most powerful thing about the program is when a bunch of people come together for a common cause, and this place... In this, in this instance, being to stay free from alcohol and drugs is a very powerful thing for me. Like mm-hmm. The most powerful part of a meeting to me is when we say the serenity prayer arm in arm at the end of the meeting. And, you know, we're really missing that right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have my my friends, we, you know, the sober Sally's. There's 10 of us on a text. And <laughs> I, I love that. Yeah, I'm telling you, these guys have, like, I, I'm a very, very fortunate man when it comes to friendships. And those cultivated here mm-hmm. in Minneapolis. So... When I left Pride, um, I came here to IOP mm-hmm. and I lived at Lindale House. Mm-hmm. I lived there for it was about five months I stayed. And, um, you know, I strongly suggest sober living. It's not just because I own two sober houses. <laughs> <laughs> plug, plug, yeah. plug alert. But that, like, you know, I needed that time to really, like, build the foundations for, like, and just focus on what was going on in my mind and my feelings and my heart to, like, face the world again with a new set of glasses. And luckily I had I had the most amazing counselor here at IOP. I loved my counselor inpatient too. He was amazing. But the woman that I had here when I came to IOP, she really forced me to sit through my uncomfortable feelings. Like when I had them, I had to then write them in a journal. Mm-hmm. And then I had to come in here and read them to her and we then process it. So instead of escaping what was going on inside and the uncomfortability, I actually put it on paper mm-hmm. and then we processed it. And I'm mm-hmm. telling it made the biggest difference for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I just, you know, whether it was an iced coffee, which you're drinking today, <laughs> like, <laughs> the uh-huh. or like, you know, whether I sexed it out or like, yeah. you know, I went shopping or I bought something. There was that constant need for like any sort of uncomfortable feeling to get rid of. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as an addict too, like I love the good feelings too. And those weren't even be good enough. I wanted mm-hmm. more. I wanted more, 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 more. So she really helped me process through that, like, and somewhat, I don't want to say control it, but be comfortable and know that it was going to pass. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was an amazing experience. And, you know, being at Lindell House, which in the LGBTQ plus house, like, oh my God, it was like gay camp. We had, <laughs> seriously, I have some of the best friendships to this day that I made in that house. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, a lot of drama happened for sure. Mm-hmm. But God, it was fun. Like, when I look back now, I was so in a rush to, like, get a job and get a, I Like, it was so much fun. Yeah. We had a blast. Yeah. And I think I, whenever I talk to people from out of state, because, you know, being as though we're LGBTQ specific, there's only, like, maybe uh, five treatment centers like us in the country. People are always really surprised when I talk about how inclusive of an environment there is in the sober community for LGBTQ people. Oh, yeah. There's, Jeez. like, ten sober mm-hmm. houses just in the uptown area, where, which is where we're at right now. Um that are LGBTQ specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, I think people are always really shocked about that. And as an owner of two, can you kind of talk about the differences between 
and maybe well i wanted to recreate the environment that i felt at pride mm -hmm. like i wanted a trans person to move into my house and feel comfortable i wanted we've had two straight guys actually live at my houses too like because we're lgbtqa we do mm -hmm. let allies in as well mm -hmm. but i knew that i wanted i wanted them to feel that i wanted them to feel safe yeah mm -hmm. i felt that that that's the most important if you're gonna really look at yourself and really delve into like what makes you tick and what why your addiction like what's going on mm -hmm. you need a safe environment to do that and that when i have interviews at my house with my house manager that's the most important thing is like i want you to make them feel like they're walking into their new home because mm -hmm. i had i had an interview when i was at pride and i got rejected from the house <laughs> yeah you know i had like 18 days sober mm -hmm. and i was like thank god i was in pride because mm -hmm. So that was uncomfortable feelings. Mm -hmm. And you know, these queens were just kind of like sitting on the couch, like <laughs> scowling at me. And I was like, God, this is so, un it was awful. Mm -hmm. And I have swore that that would never happen at one of my houses. And if I hear that it did, I'm going to be really angry. Mm -hmm. Because think about it. People are like 15 days sober and they're going to meet 12, 13 gay, lesbian, right. trans. Mm -hmm. Like that's intimidating. It's super intimidating. intimidating. Like, and that's your home. And that's but where it doesn't have to be. Yeah. That's the, like... We are welcoming these people in to recover to the fullest of their ability. Let me say, so I've been a hairstylist for, I don't know, 24 years now. Watching people leave my house, I actually have two people leaving one of my houses today. They, one just had 18 months and the other one's got over two years. Like, to me, that is like the most rewarding gift. Yes, it's a business. Don't get me wrong. It's mm -hmm. a business. But it's a rewarding business for sure. Absolutely. To give people that environment and a roof over their head, to focus on their recovery, and be the best person they could possibly be is the best gift ever. Because I, I've been in this a long time and I always, you know, there's been many times in my life where I was like, okay, God, what's the answer? For mm -hmm. me, like, God's my higher power. Like, what's the answer? And it's always been help somebody else. Get out of myself and help somebody else. Well, and with this community too, I, I, you notice, or you had mentioned uh, creating a safe space for people. And I think I get a lot of questions and Kaylee gets a mm -hmm. lot of questions of like, well, why LGBTQ specific care in 2021? I mean, we've moved so far mm -hmm. and I think, yes, we have, but there's still so much work to be done. And so a lot of times it's like, well, how can you expect somebody to get better and to battle their addiction when they're sitting in a group with someone who very may well not even accept them as a human being or mm -hmm. accept their love? Exactly. Um, and so I think in creating safe environments for people obviously is only going to benefit them and only going to benefit their addiction. And sometimes, like, when people come to us, it's the first time they've ever had a safe space in their life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not uncommon that we see people who um, haven't even come out yet and we help them process that and we mm -hmm. sit their family down and we help them have those conversations. And so I think being able to provide somebody that safe space for two years while they're battling their, you know, toughest demons is incredible. Absolutely. And I think we have come a long way to 2021, but not everywhere. No. no, and the fact that we we provide this space here mm -hmm. is what's so important. Like, yeah, I I was in New York, like, mm -hmm. but I've met, and it's so funny. Since I moved here, I've met so many horror stories from people whose families have disowned them from coming mm -hmm. out, conversion mm -hmm. there, like so much trauma, so much trauma, mm -hmm. and I, I didn't feel that as much in on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, a lot of New Yorkers aren't from New York, but like mm -hmm. I've heard a lot more stories about that here. And I, let me tell you, I'm such a New Yorker that when it, so when I when I left here, you're a New Yorker. Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I didn't know where the Midwest was. Uh -huh. Like I didn't. Yeah. Even. So I I left to 
Lindale House coming, like I had like an eight day grace period before they had a bed open. Mm-hmm. So I went to see my mom in Florida, mm-hmm. flew to New York, got my dog in my car and drove here. And while I was driving here, like I didn't even, I was like, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't even know, it's like Kimmy Schmidt. I thought Indiana, I thought Indiana was in the South. Oh, Seriously, no. I was like, I got another state to drive through. Uh-huh. <laughs> How long of a drive is it? It was like, it took like 22 hours. We literally stopped uh-huh. for four hours in a hotel and I slept well. I was so anxious to get here. Mm-hmm. I actually left New York early because I was not feeling safe. I was mm-hmm. like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. yeah. What was your first thought when you entered the state or like once you left like treatment and you were living in Minneapolis in the Midwest? I, w- I just had a sigh of relief to be honest. With really? Like a, yeah. It's just like a big breath out. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, like, you know, they say geographics don't work. Mm-hmm. I don't, for me, it did. But I did it in the right environment. It also gave me the courage to, like, you know, it was a big move to move here. Mm-hmm. But I also know now that if my life took me somewhere else, like, that's the great thing about AA and the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you walk in a meeting, you have instant friends. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And you had mentioned the first time you relapsed, it was because you stopped going to meetings, right? In New York, yeah. And then so when you came Yeah, back, I forgot I was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then when you were living in Minneapolis, what, I guess, meetings helped you the most? And you had mentioned CMA. Can you share with everyone what that means? CMA is Crystal Meth Anonymous, okay. which I did not partake in New York. I only went to AA meetings there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there are definitely issues, certain issues mm-hmm. specific to meth users. Mm-hmm. I did not have really have, like, I've always had sort of sex issues, but it got <laughs> I, I times a hundred when I started with Matt. So I, mm-hmm. when I went back to New York, that was part of my relapse after the first stint here was, was around the sex issues and meth. Mm-hmm. For sure. So I think there's some very specific issues to meth users that are addressed at CMA that I wasn't getting out of my AA program. Um, so that's really helped a lot. I was very like maintaining sobriety for me means no, no less than three meetings a week. That's, and I'm going to, I have to admit that it's been difficult with zoom because I don't feel the, yeah. Um, so I, I do it more surrounding, like with my friends. Like tonight, I have my home group on Zoom. I'm definitely going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do it more specific with like groups of friends, like the sober Sallies get together for dinner. And you know, you know, we don't just gossip and gaggle. Like you know, we like you know, there's a lot of recovery talk going on at the same time. And I always know that I have, you know, using other people when times are feeling weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and we're definitely in one of those spots right yeah. now. And even just being able to build a routine and like form healthy habits on the daily. And it's so hard right now because it's like, we feel like we're all just on our own island by ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like Groundhog Day every day. <laughs> honestly, it is. Like what month is it? If what I, day is it? Where if, are we? If I don't go, so we work a lot from home because mm-hmm. we do marketing and sales yeah. and a lot of computer stuff and phone calls and Zoom calls and all that stuff. But if I don't go for a walk at like five or six o'clock at night and leave my house, like I, the day, don't leave your house. I don't know if the yeah. days, like, I don't know what day it is. <laughs> it's just insane. Um, and so I can't even imagine having to navigate this world. And I'm in just awe of all of our clients and everybody in recovery who's been able to maintain their sobriety. Yeah. I think it's like incredible. I mean, people are moving into my sober house and they're basically not leaving it. Mm-hmm. Really, right? Like IOPs on Zoom, mm-hmm. meetings mm-hmm. are on Zoom. Like mm-hmm. that sober house environment's got to be on point right now because, mm-hmm. you know, they're, and I, I think that the best part about it is that they're not alone right now. That's exactly because they have people around them. At this time mm-hmm. during COVID and the pandemic, like sober housing is more important than ever. Yep. For sure. Like I could not imagine leaving Pride and being out on my own. 
No. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of people run the risk or are thinking right now, well, I don't want to move into a house when like possibly, you know, get this disease, which is absolutely understandable. But I'm thinking I'm just like being in an environment where people are going through the same thing as you and you have that, you know, support, support right mm-hmm. next to you. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we've definitely changed the, the guidelines on, mm-hmm. on participants during COVID. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're really respecting each other for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, we have to, right? We have to protect each other. Mm-hmm. Right? So. so at our residential location, we have 42 beds. And so that's a lot of bodies during this time. And a lot of people ask, you know, so what are you doing to kind of combat that? And mm-hmm. so we do obviously screenings. We have rapid testing. Um, what kind of um, things go into your sober housing? Well, we leave no guests allowed at the house. Yep. You know, we're like, which makes it even harder for people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, all, they're not really leaving the house anyway. Sure. You know, and the protocols of like, have you been exposed to COVID? Where did you go? Like, what, what's going on? So did you wear your mask? Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. We've had two COVID cases and one in each of the houses. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, like, they handled it beautifully. Really? So yeah, I like- luckily have, I have three individual rooms in each house, so we could isolate the person. They made the meals and brought them to them. Aww. Yeah, like, they really took care of, like, so could you imagine if that person was on their own in recovery and got COVID? Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I knew it was bound to happen at mm-hmm. some point. Right. But, you know, then everyone went and got at least two tests after that. And most everybody else in the house tested negative. So I think we did a good job handling it. Everybody right. then started wearing masks within the house while this was going <laughs> yeah. on. So, yeah, but they, they were really there for each other. And they were obviously the, the people who had COVID were quarantined in their own room. In their own room. And when my, I remember when my house manager called to tell me, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be... It's amazing. over. Yeah. yeah. Remember when this all started? We all thought we were dying. Yeah, we I mean, all thought we were going to die. toilet paper and <laughs> all of it was gone. And we're all just like, okay, this it's is over. nice. It's over, yeah. And then I, they were actually talking about that. I watched the year-end thing on Netflix mm-hmm. of like year-end 2020. And I forgot Australia was literally in flames. At yeah. the beginning of 2020. And now they're fine. And now, well, and yeah. Yeah. But it's like, that was so dramatic. And like, that was supposed to be the token. Like, this is the crisis of 2020. Mm-hmm. And then, Even the fires yeah. in California were like uh-huh. overshadowed by, yeah. by everything. COVID. Yeah, everything. It's My sober houses, by the way, have enough toilet paper for the next five years. <laughs> <laughs> You're responsible for the yeah. shortages. If anybody needs, just let me know. Well, I yeah, think I that's a wonderful place to start. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, thank you so much for being our guinea pig, and we so appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.